James chapter 4, continuing from last week. How to keep your life from the most serious mistakes. James 4, 11 to 17. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. We looked at that last Sunday morning. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. And yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Two important things you need to know about yourself, when you were born and why you were born. Two things every person needs to know. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Boast arrogance. Keep those in mind. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray. Keep me from relying on uh, my own resources. Keep us as a church ever sensitive to moments when you break in and speak into our hearts and lives. That's why we came. We came to meet you. And so we invite you by your word, O Holy Spirit, that sword of yours. Such a violent image, and yet we know what it means is cutting off, cutting out the tumors, cutting out the dead growth, carving out large slices of self that only lead to misery and bondage. And so, speak to our hearts as we look into your word today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The meaning of the text is indelibly linked with the verse immediately preceding. We started at verse 11, but if you went back to 10, you would see, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James is encouraging humility in the hearts of people. And then he's going to deal with two sins that war against humility. Two sins that are particularly different but related in the sense that they destroy, they make humility virtually impossible. Some sins, some sins are harmful in the way they just bring guilt. Other sins are harmful in the way they bring a greater propensity to more sin. That's what he is dealing with here. Anything that makes me proud doesn't just make me a sinner, it makes me more likely to commit all sorts of sins. Humility, when you think about it, Humble people aren't perfect, but humble people have the safeguard of recognizing when they've done something wrong and repenting. Humble people repent. Proud people are independent. 
Humility, even in the face of sin and guilt, makes cleansing and restoration and growth possible. Proud people, even in the face of success, are doomed to future disaster because pride is the soil out of which all the other sins grow. And so, when James says you ought to say this or that, don't be boasting in your arrogance. Such boasting is evil. We're meant to relate that back to verse 10. God, God exalts humble people. Proud people destroy themselves. And so we've been looking at, last week in this, two sins that make spirituality virtually impossible because they feed pride. The first was speaking evil against a brother or sister. We notice the important word in verse 11 is that word against, against a brother. These are aimed words, calculated words. And when I, when I speak evil against a brother, what I reveal is this total unawareness of how desperately I stand only by God's grace for all of my wickedness, for all of my sin. And speaking evil against a brother only shows I don't, I don't get how grace works. I don't get how it works in my own life. And that's where we get those complicated words in verse 11 where James says, when you, when you do that to a brother, it's, it's like setting yourself up above the law. There's, a, there's an arrogance to it. Now we move on to the second sin which James says feeds pride. The second sin that removes my life from divine grace. And he deals with a kind of uh, casual presumption that can settle into my heart as I go about my daily routine, my daily agenda. Now remember, James is dealing with these two sins because he has reminded us in verse 10, God only exalts humble people. If you want God to lift you up, there are only certain people God lifts up. They are humble people. People aware of their own need of grace. And so we're observing two sins with the same root cause. Evil words against a brother can only flow from a heart that's forgotten divine grace extended to itself. And presumption in daily living can only flow from a heart that has forgotten its own dependence on God's strength. So we looked at point number one last week. I'm continuing with the numbering, so this is point number two. I am never to assume the role of judging God's laws nor his people. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able, and then he has both to save and to destroy. So there's one lawgiver, one judge. He's able to save and destroy. So the logical question is, Don, who are you to judge your neighbor? can't help but wondering if James isn't wording this verse particularly to people like me and people like you. If I'm the one speaking evil, and, and as James has just said, setting myself up above the law, I'm speaking evil about a brother because I feel I have the right to do so. That's what makes me set myself up as an authority. Maybe what I'm saying about this brother is actually true, for one thing. 
Maybe I've been snubbed. Maybe I've been hurt. Maybe I've been wronged and really wronged. I'm not going to let this go. And so speaking evil against a brother, I've convinced myself that he has it coming and this overrides God's law in this case. That's the meaning of that difficult 11th verse. I, I put myself above the law. And then James says, but, but Don, there's, there's only one judge, God Almighty. And oh, by the way, he is able to both save and destroy, verse 12. That means he can save the one whom I think is the scum of the earth and does not deserve saving and does not deserve grace. Have you, isn't it annoying when God shows mercy to people you don't like? He can save. He can save people you think don't qualify. By the way, that was you too. And he can destroy the one who presumes to speak evil in the name of righteousness or dares to take God's role as judge in personal affairs. Apparently, James feels, I always need this basic lesson on the sovereignty of God. Because it isn't the only place James talks about this idea of there just being one judge and we not being it. It's also talked about in Romans chapter 14, verse 4. Same question. Who, who are you? To pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. The Lord is able to make him stand. It's a very humbling thing to have God tell you he can work wonders in the hearts of someone you don't like. We like being assured we are candidates for God's marvelous restoring grace, no matter how bad we've been. We like to be told we, by some unbelievable miracle, are considered worthy to be his servants. But we don't like being told that our enemy has the wonderful capacity for God's restoring grace, or that your enemy has this incredible potential, this one against whom I'm speaking, to serve God. Remember, says Paul, that brother you consider your enemy is really God's servant. We all like to think that our enemies are our enemies. We own them. Personally, they're our enemies. God says, God says you can't have enemies. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to have enemies. They don't belong to you. They serve someone else. They serve your creator. They report to God, not to you. Therefore, you don't get to keep enemies. You can't keep enemies like you can keep a dog. They're not yours. They have another master, Paul says. They serve someone else, James says. God can do with them as he pleases, James and Paul both say. Maybe one more thing needs to be said, though. Because of the worship of tolerance in our society, and because of the way this is just blindly, uh, like maple syrup, just kind of 
crept its way into the value system of the contemporary church. Maybe we need to emphasize one important distinction at this point. When James says, verse 12, who are you to judge your neighbor? We know what he means and we know what he doesn't mean. James is not saying we're to be careless or undiscerning about either absolute truth or divine morality and righteousness. We know this because Jesus himself said we were to make sound judgments in the keeping of our souls. That's in John 7, 24. Don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. Please, everybody hear that? Jesus says you're supposed to judge. Because everybody goes to the other verses. Don't judge lest you be judged. And every time you make a comment about what this, this is sinful or that's wrong or you shouldn't do that, people say, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Jesus says don't judge lest you be judged. Don't judge me. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And this is Jesus. John 7, 24. Do not judge by appearances. That's what we do. I don't like you. You said something about me. You did something about me. And I pass my judgment on you. Jesus says, that's not your job. Don't be looking at the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a great big hunk of rock in your own eye. But in terms of what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, what should be taught, what shouldn't be taught, what should be said in a church, what shouldn't be said in a church. Judge with right judgment. There are all sorts of people who make their value assessments in life based on the outward show that some people can put on. But there are many much bigger issues and we should all know them. So we're to be careful, we're to be discerning when it comes to the kind of teaching we allow to shape our minds and hearts. Jesus talked about that in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 7, the one everybody quotes. Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Know the truth. Know what you're being taught. Know what's being said. There's truth and there's error. Don't swallow it all the same. Paul deals with the same thing. We're going to look at this text on November 1st in a subject that I've been thinking about and it's it's put up on the internet. Here's another example. Time for judgment in the church itself. It's actually reported, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 3, that there is sexual immorality. Rini showed me a post uh, on, on uh, Facebook. This is going back. A uh, uh, woman living with a guy, not married. And the first thing she has, this, this I guess to all Christian people that she knows, her Christian friends and people in churches, don't judge me. Well, I mean, I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you the Bible says what you're doing is wrong. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that it's not tolerated even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. 
isn't this a strange sentence here? And you are arrogant. He's talking to the church now, not, not to the two people in the relationship. What does that mean? This church had become arrogant. Well, we get a clue in the next sentence. Ought you not rather to mourn? So they're arrogant because they were, they were proud that they weren't judging. That's what it is. And, and, and Paul says, shouldn't you just be crying about this? Weeping about this? Proud. We, we, don't, we don't judge people in our church. We just let God judge and we let everyone do their own thing. Praise God. Paul says, that's just arrogance. Let him who has done this be removed from you. That's what I want to talk about on uh, November, first Sunday in November. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already, I have pronounced judgment. Paul, I thought we weren't supposed to do that. So we know from the New Testament that there are all sorts of times, all sorts of situations where judgment is not only right, but it's required. Recognizing truth and error. Recognizing sexual immorality and righteousness. So, so what does James mean when he says, verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, Remember the context of these words. James condemns these people. They're church people, obviously. He's writing to the church. These church people for speaking evil against their brothers and sisters. It's, it's a kind of personal vendetta. It's a, it's a cloaked kind of revenge. It's a private, behind-the-scenes, tearing my enemy down because of something I didn't think was right that was done to me. They're words against a brother, not just words against an issue. There's a kind of bitterness and anger that comes about when I've been mistreated personally and I'm trying to get even. Or it happens when my heart is filled with envy. That's harder to admit. Someone else got something I didn't get. Someone else had their life going through the roof of blessing. Seems to have the world by the tail. Didn't work that way for me. If I recognize false teaching, I can expose it without speaking evil against a brother. If I see a brother caught in a sin, I can humbly pray and offer help, like Paul says in Galatians, remembering my own weakness. But when I speak evil against a brother, I'm trying to damage him. I'm trying to elevate myself, and neither one of those is an option for a humble Christian. I'm not the one to pour judgment on my enemy, not the one to even a score. I'm not the one to ruin a reputation. So I said at the beginning, what we're studying in this message is humility's opposites. And there are these two forms of arrogance and pride that James warns against. This evil speaking, we've been looking at that at length. I'm going to, more briefly, I want to move on to the second sin. Evil speaking, he says, that's just a proud, arrogant heart, and all sorts of sins are going to flow out of that life. The other one doesn't look as bad. Point number three. The sin of not planning God into the details of our lives. Look at James 4, 13 to 16. 
Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Not one person in this room knows what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while. You know, you get up early on some of those summer days and, you, and it's just fog. You come back at noon and it's clear as a bell and the sky is blue and it's gone. James says, there, Don, that, that's you, by the way. That's your life, your whole life. In the big scheme of things. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live, do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. There's the pride. All such boasting is evil. We need, if we're going to make sense of this, to understand uh, what the real sin is in these words. And so James pictures a typical group of Christian merchants making typical business plans. Now remember, in those days, extensive travel wasn't by jet aircraft. It would be a long, slow occasion, sometimes taking easily a year or more. Not surprisingly, great care and planning were needed to maximize time and profit. And, and James isn't saying there is anything wrong with that. The sin James describes isn't traveling or planning or doing business or making lots of money. Do we all understand? James not against any of those things. So what is it? What is the sin James feels is so deadly in these verses that he highlights it? It's not their brilliance in business that James is addressing. It's not their carefulness in planning. It's, it's their blindness. It's their ignorance about their own lives that's the problem. They know how to conduct business. What they don't know is how to think about life. Here's the life lesson for everyone to take home from church today, all right? The most dangerous thing about your ordinary routine is the way it makes you forget God. The most dangerous thing about your ordinary routine is the way it makes you forget about God. The things that we just do over and over again, normally, naturally. Look at the way these people make their plans. 13. Today or tomorrow. Not sure which. Today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a town. We're going to spend a year there. We're going to trade and make profit. Everything is framed up as though it were absolutely certain. That's the problem. These verses aren't just here to teach Christians to say Lord willing before every sentence. It's not like some mantra. Derek and Eva didn't have to say, you know, come to church tonight. Lord willing, come to church tonight. The sin isn't a a thing said. It's an attitude in the heart. These business people have been Christians for a while now, and they're very busy. That's fine. And James sees them making their plans, and as he watches them, he says, he says there's something wrong. 
They're planning everything as though it was secure. They don't think of all their plans and all their efforts and all their profit. They don't think of any of those things as being in any way contingent anymore. Their future doesn't depend on anything or anyone but them. James says there, arrogance. Arrogance. Pride. That's what that is. Now, of course, deep down in their hearts, these are Christian people. They go to church. They know that it does. If you ask them about life, they would say, well, it's all in the Lord's hands. I'm just here as his servant. They say the kind of stuff we all say. They know the lingo. But they didn't think about it anymore. And they didn't think about it anymore because everything was going fine, everything was working, and they forgot the only reason it was all working is the goodness and grace of God. And they didn't think about that. They knew it, but they didn't process it day by day by day. It's very easy to do, isn't it? Ten years, I'll have my house paid for. Thirteen more payments, the car's mine. If I can get these two projects off the ground, I'll retire with money in the bank. And James isn't saying there's anything wrong with any of those plans, except that you can begin to kid yourself into thinking that that's what your life is really all about, and it isn't. Or you just project yourself into the future as though it were already as good as accomplished. And, and the net effect of that kind of mindless presumption is it takes eternity out of your thinking. And it takes God out of your thinking. It's like that rich farmer in Jesus' parable who was tearing down his barns to build bigger ones. Is that a sin? Is it a sin to your business is too small and you want to expand it? Is that a sin? Please, somebody give me the right answer. Of course not. Of course not. It's not a sin to find out that you haven't got enough place for your livestock or you haven't got enough room to store your grain. You need more room. Well, why does Jesus go so hard on this farmer? Well, because it is wrong not to reckon on the shortness of your life, the reality of judgment day, and that's what James is saying in verse 14. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? See, there it is. Think about your life, not just what you have. Think about your life itself. Look at it. It's like a mist. It's gone. Don't just think about what you have. Think about what your life is. It's on a racetrack to standing before Jesus. That's what your life is. We all tend to ignore God most 
in the areas where we excel with our own skills and abilities. That's James' point. People drift away from God. They don't deny him. Not Christian people. Consciously bring God into all of life. Especially the areas where you can do a great job yourself. Simple practical way to do this is is simply to pause long enough to ask the right questions. Questions like these. Is it automatically God's will? Automatically is the important word. Is it automatically God's will for me to grab every chance for advancement in this world system? Could he ever want me to take a cut in pay or a demotion to spend more time with my spouse or come to church Sunday night? Nah. What am I doing with the prosperity he sends my way? How do I assess and fulfill my divine calling from God in this world besides going to church? How am I fulfilling God's divine call on my life besides going to church? If I make a lot of money... How can I fight the natural inclination that God gave me that wealth to spend it on my own comfort and my own security? Now, you're like me. When I think about those questions, there's a little voice in the back of my head that says, well, I know, but nobody really lives like that in the real world. I'm pretty much like all the other Christians I know and work with. I'm pretty much like all the other Christians I know and work with. And that's why James closes, we're almost done, with one subject that applies to all of us, and it's the last point, point number four. How to meekly receive the implanted word on this important subject. The important subject is this idea now of of assessing what your life is and prioritizing the kingdom of God in your life, okay? And the argument against it is, well, you know, outside of missionaries and preachers, and I give them money to do that, by the way, Pastor Don, so I don't have to. So, except for those, like, way out on the fringe people, I live life just as well as any other Christians. There's people sitting on my right and people sitting on my left in this service right now, and I I live life pretty much the way they do, So it's got to be fine. To that, James says, 4.17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it's sin. You see, James knows my tendency to measure my spiritual depth by comparing my life with yours. I don't know very many people who consciously start each day reminding themselves that their life is a vapor and a mist and that there's no security or certainty in the things of the world. Most of us, except we go to church on Sunday, most of us, for all the world, live like the same things that everyone else lives for. And James knows that I use that argument to prove my life isn't wicked. James knows that I can use an argument like that to prove that my faith is average. It's typical. I take great comfort in that. 
And that's why I need James to say to me, Don, your life isn't average. It's sinful. If you know you should view your life as short and fragile and ultimately only safe, dedicated radically to me, if you know that and you don't do anything about it, don't be measuring by someone else. It's a sin. For you to know it and not live it, it's a sin. It'd be a great place for an altar call, wouldn't it? So teach us to number our days, the psalm. Teach us to do this every day. Not to be gloomy, not to be morbid, but to make each day count for God's highest glory and our greatest joy. Do you want to live a humble, spiritual life that God loves to exalt? 410. How many would say, stupid question, that's what I want to do, Pastor Don. We, we just want to do that. Two things. Don't speak evil against anybody ever. Bring God into every moment of your life and seek his kingdom first, besides just going to church on Sunday. And here's what you will discover. God will take your life and he will exalt it. Let's pray.